Okay, so two childhood medical stories. Uh, we'll go with mine first and then Ryan's. Uh, so for mine, I fell off my kitchen counter when I was three. I've shared that story with you guys. Fractured my skull, lost all my hearing in my left ear, 100% deaf. Um, I knew very little about my medical condition growing up. My parents just told me I fell off our kitchen counter and broke my head. Like basically, I just, I just knew that I was deaf in my left ear. I didn't know any of the technical aspects of it. I really had minimal understanding. If somebody were to ask me anything about my cochlea or nerve damage or any of my inner ear issues or is the nerve still alive, can they react? I, I knew none of that stuff, none of it, not a, not a lick. Um, and I wasn't that compelled to know. Like I just, it was like you grow up with a deaf ear and you just kind of do life and figure it out and it's no big deal. Uh, you miss out on some of the intros of music when you're wearing headphones. You know, Led Zeppelin comes on and it's just empty and then all of a sudden it kicks in. Uh, but other than that, you really don't notice much. Ryan had a different issue. So Ryan, when he was young, had a heart issue, mitral valve prolapse. Hey, look at that. Uh, and I think it was eight years old. Is that right? When he was eight years old, he went and saw a cardiologist. And uh, Ryan's cardiologist explained to an eight-year-old the things that were going on in his heart and the issues that he was facing and the challenges that he was going to have and why his body was doing things the way that they were doing them and what was going on that was causing the kinds of symptoms that he was facing. There was enough information there that it actually led Ryan to want to be a cardiologist. He started down the path at Cal State Long Beach going towards a medical route until God redirected his story into something different. But that information was compelling enough to Ryan that he just, he actually wanted to know more. That doctor taking the time to walk through in great detail his medical situation actually caused him to crave even more knowledge. Now let's flip back to my situation. So my situation, as I got older and knew nothing about my medical condition, uh, I started to have issues in my right ear. I started to, uh, over the course of pandemic, uh, the masks, I couldn't hear people talk. I was really struggling. My ear was getting muddy. End of days, I could barely discern words. I was really struggling with my hearing. And I started to freak out a little bit because having one ear gone is fine. Having two ears gone, well, that felt like an issue. Um, and so... I, you know, I kind of started working it out and, and eventually went to an uh, ear, nose, and throat doctor and an audi audiologist because I, I just felt like I actually needed to understand what was going on and why, what are the options? What can I do to fix this? Uh, and it was a really interesting experience sort of later in life having this sort of like medical, it's a condition I've lived with my whole life, but almost like a medical recrisis, trying to figure out, is this fixable? Maybe if this one goes down, I can take this one into the shop and get it sorted out. Like, you know, just let's figure something out. And I think what, what I'm going at today is as we get into Romans chapter 5, what Paul does with Romans chapter 5 is it takes something like John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have eternal life. For some people, there's, there's great satisfaction in that verse. All I need to know is that if I believe in Jesus, I have salvation. And for a lot of people, we enter into our story with Jesus with actually kind of a minimal amount of information. 
For those of us that grew up in a Christian home, you sort of like grow up in this ecosystem and you don't think about it very much and it's just kind of, it's just kind of there and around you and you accept the things of Jesus and walk in the things of Jesus and yeah, you're learning them, but there was never this challenge of the alternative. So you just kind of walk in this, you could call it a bubble your whole life and, and, and maybe someday that bubble gets challenged. Maybe someday that, that the, the truths of that or the, the depths of that get tested and you've never really understood the depths of your own salvation to be able to have a level of resilience. It's actually where a lot of, there's a whole category now of people called de-churched where they grew up in a church context and they've completely lost interest in pursuing a life with God, completely lost interest in life in the church. But they're called de-churched because they did grow up in the church context, being taught these things and having that proximity. What Paul does in Romans 5 is he's, he's Ryan's cardiologist. He's going to take the time to make sure that every single one of us understands not just that we are saved, not just John 3.16, but I want you to know how salvation works. I want you to know how intricate this salvation is that God has provided through Jesus Christ. I want you to actually be able to have some depth and knowledge of understanding because it is a profound reality that's gone on in our salvation, in our spiritual condition. And it has nuance and it has depth of understanding. And there are going to come days where your faith is tested where your knowledge of what has gone on is tested. And for some of you, that, that might create a little bit of a crisis. Like, well, I, actually, I don't know. I don't, I don't really know what salvation is or, or how it works. Or the enemy likes to bring lies and, and ask that question of, okay, did God really say that? And what Paul's trying to do is equip you with the ability to say, oh, yeah, God said that. I know God said that. I know where God said that and why God said that. And I know what he meant by that. And that's what Paul is getting at with this passage. So we're going to get into this. People uh, will look at Romans chapter 5 and say that it is among the densest sections of Scripture. Um, and you might be thinking, we're in Romans. We've already been in the densest section of Scriptures. And this, that's, that's how loaded this passage is. So we're in Romans 5. We're going to look at 12 through 21. I'm going to try and walk through the whole passage and then circle back to some of the great implications, particularly from chapter 5, verse 17. So if you have your Bibles, open to Romans chapter 5. We'll be in verses 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many." And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. 
For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord, be with us as we study the scriptures and help us to walk in the power of the implications of your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so therefore, Paul starts off. He wants us to understand the flow of sin and the flow of salvation, and he wants us to understand it really well. And what he's ultimately going to do is he's going to compare Adam and Jesus. Adam and Jesus. So Adam, the first man. And, and maybe you're looking at this and thinking, why does uh, Paul choose to use Adam instead of Eve? If it was Eve that sinned first, why does he choose Adam to talk about uh, sin and responsibility? And ultimately, and just so that you understand this, we do see God creating these roles of male and female, these roles in marriage. And this is one of those great displays of those roles of husband and wife. And even in this context, he's holding Adam responsible for uh, this relationship with Eve and the, the circumstances of that first sin. The scriptures point to Adam as responsible for bringing this on mankind. And so if you've ever looked at it and, and just said, okay, I don't understand roles in marriage in the scriptures or, uh, you know, aren't male, female equal in Christ? And we would look at that and we would say 100% we would see them equal in value but distinct in role and responsibility. There's distinction given to male and female in the scriptures. And this is one of those key places where we would see that is Adam being held responsible for the entry point of sin into the world as a key component of what, uh, what that male role is, the responsibility that, uh, that a husband might carry in a marriage situation. And that might be hard to wrap your head around and, and maybe even something that goes against the way that culture might teach male and female roles, but it's, it's, in Romans 5, it's probably one of the most core places for us to see uh, this male responsibility, um, and it's very much in a, a negative context. Adam was responsible for the sinful condition of the world, according to what Paul writes. And he says this, Just as sin came into the world through the one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now here's another theological issue that people oftentimes uh, get frustrated by. It's this idea of federal headship or federal representation. Adam sinned, and therefore all sinned. And for a lot of people, they would look at that and they would say, well, that's not fair. Why am I held responsible for Adam's decision? I didn't get the chance to be born into a sinless world and to give it my best shot to become a pure and righteous person. I, I was born into a curse and I'm held accountable for that curse. I'm held accountable for that sin. That's not fair. 
And for some people, that issue of Adam's sin and then everybody else being born into sin, they would actually like to dispose of that doctrine and say, yes, Adam sinned, but everybody is born good. Everybody's born into the opportunity to be righteous. And they might even hold that all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Nobody makes it, but they would preach this, well, everybody's born innocent. Everybody's born innocent and given the opportunity to try and make it on their own merit. And sure, nobody does. They all fall short of the glory of God, but at least God gives them the chance. And so they dispute this doctrine of Adam sinning and that affecting and implying, or implicating, I should say, everybody in this sinful state. But that would actually be denying Paul's theology in Romans 5. That would be saying, I I choose to believe something different than what Paul teaches because maybe I don't like what Paul teaches. And so for us, we have to look at this and say, well, Paul's teaching something that's important for us to understand, and it does have profound implications in how you understand salvation. If Adam's sin affected each following person, then you have to understand God's seeing this as Jesus' righteousness also has the potential to affect everybody that will receive the free gift. So one of the things that Paul is emphasizing here is, is if sin infected everybody, there's also a way for righteousness, we'll use the negative word infect, righteousness to infect everybody as well. And so that's when he gets into this idea and starts to process this and talk about this a little bit. So he says, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. And I just want to say this. You might be looking at that and saying, Oh, okay, so sin is not counted where there is no law. So the indigenous tribe and the far-reaching islands of the far-reaching South Pacific that nobody's ever talked to, they're not accountable for their sin. Is that what you're saying? And the answer is no. That's that's not what Paul's getting at. Because he says this, That sin was in the world before the law was given. There's that issue of the curse. And what the law did is the law actually brought many sins, not just the curse of sin. So the law started to name the different ways that we violate God's character. It actually told us how the individual things that we do break God's holiness and his declared way over humanity. So we were under the curse from Adam, as in all were dead, all were in sin. We just were a part of this thing, which I'll get into in just a minute. And then there's the actual sins of humanity. And to help you understand this, there are two Greek words. We see transgression and sin in Romans 5. It's actually two different Greek words that are being used here. A little Greek lesson. The classic word for sin is hamartia. And hamartia is that whole missing the mark. It's the archery term. It talks about sin in that way. And there's this other Greek word that, that comes from the root word pipto, like piptobismo. I'm just kidding. Don't get that in your head. Pipto. And that, that word means to fall. It's actually where we get the concept of the fall. It's why we would call the first sin in Genesis 3, the fall of mankind, because it's talking about this collective sinful state that we are in, this fallen state that we have. 
That's where, that, that's where that idea comes from. So when you say the fall of man or the fallenness of humanity or we're talking about total depravity as a doctrine, it comes from this Greek word that emphasizes the fallenness of humanity, not just the individual sins of humanity, but that word is also used in this section. So Paul actually wants us to see the two different realities. Now, out of fear of losing you in uh, a, a mess of Greek and all of that, I just want to say, the hope of your knowledge of this is that you understand that two things are in play here. One is that we are all under a curse, the curse of sin and death, and that needed to be dealt with, and that's the fall of man. There's also this issue that Paul's getting at of the sins that we commit in our everyday life, the ways that we miss the mark, the ways that we go against God's uh, way, those are an issue as well, and both are being dealt with in the work that Jesus accomplishes. Verse 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Okay, so that's when there is no law. That's all he's saying. Death reigned from Adam to Moses before the law was given, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. That's the two different words. The sins were not like the fall. The fall brought the curse, but the sins were just these varying expressions of how we rebel against God. And Adam was a type of the one who was to come. That's, again, Paul laying the groundwork for Adam representing all people in sin and Jesus representing all who will follow him in righteousness. Okay, we got through verses four, verse 14, so let's dig into verse 15. The free gift is not like the trespass. Okay, so the gift of grace is not like the fall. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. This is Paul doing God math. He's essentially saying the full weight of condemnation for sin came after one instance of sinful disobedience. All it took for the full weight of God's wrath to be poured out on sin was for Adam and Eve to disobey God in the garden. One sin. And now Paul's looking at this and saying, what's happened since that one sin? Well, the law came and he'll talk about it in verse 19 where he says, or sorry, verse 20, the law came in to increase the trespass. Our knowledge of sin increased exponentially as the law came in and God starts to talk about what holiness looks like in relationships. What holiness looks like in community. What holiness looks like in morality and character. And all of the ways that we miss and we miss and we miss and we miss. All of a sudden, our knowledge of sin is not just that we are rebellious against God, but we actually have this deep knowledge of the many ways that we sin against God. So condemnation came from one sin. But Paul's looking at this and he's like, how many sins is God counting when he brings this opportunity for righteousness. 
He says there's this reality of what we're talking about, that sin has increased exponentially, and now the sins of the world are, I mean, unlimited. There's evil everywhere. There's brokenness everywhere you look. Our tendency is to look outward and see the brokenness out there and to look at the news and see the brokenness out there. But even if you were to be honest with yourself, let's just say you were to take a day of solitude. Maybe as a a practice, a spiritual practice, you, you go to the beach or you go to the desert or you hike a mountain and you say, okay, Lord, I'm all ears. Search me and know me and see if there is any offensive way to be found in me. You might need two or three journals to fill up what you would find if you listen to the Lord in that setting. Think of all the attitudes, just even the micro flashes of rebellion, aggression, dishonesty, frustration, lust, and envy, and greed, and, and hunger for things that are not God, and judgment, and the stuff that pours out of us all the time. And our list, our sinful list is massive. And so Paul's just pondering this, the bigness of our sins. And he says, okay, it's, we're in a different situation with God math. So condemnation came from one sin. And that's that, that's that pipto, that's the fall. Condemnation's here because of the fall. But God's salvation isn't just dealing with the fall. It's extending to all of our sinful activities. All of the implications of our fall are being dealt with by Jesus on the cross. He's not just taking the curse of humanity and dealing with it on on a big curse level. He's also taking every sin that you and I have ever committed and he's addressing it on the cross. That's what Paul's getting at. The free gift is not like that one man's sin. This is different. The free gift following many trespasses brought justification, being declared righteous. Have you guys heard the the fully known, fully loved equation? Many of us, uh, these are things that we desire, are being fully known and fully loved. But those things are also terrifying because we believe that if anybody fully knew us, it would be impossible for them to fully love us. And for most of us in our relationships, we would look at it and say, anybody that fully loves us, well, unfortunately, they don't fully know us. But here we have a God who fully knows us. There's nothing hidden. There's stuff that you've done to rebel against God that you don't even know about, and he knows. And he fully loves you just the same. Fully aware of all of your brokenness. God says, I know. I see it. And I love you just the same. Verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. 
We're going to come back to verse 17. It's actually where we're going to finish the whole message is in verse 17. You can put a pin in it. I'll even encourage you to underline it in your Bible when we get back to it. But let's go to verse 18, and then we'll circle back to 17. Verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Paul's fleshing this out just a little bit. One man's disobedience, a one-time sin, and it cursed all of humanity. All of humanity's gazillion sins, and Jesus in his obedience, that singular act of obedience, it will actually bring righteousness. It will wash clean all of those sins. Paul's not in this moment trying to necessarily convince you of Jesus' goodness. He's actually trying to show you just how deep and wide the love of Jesus is that it handled everything that you brought to the table. All your countless sins were factored in to the cross. So this is important because Satan will try to lie to you. There are going to be times where you sin. And Satan will speak to you and say, well, ah, I mean, your salvation was good, but that? I don't think God could, I don't think God's really down with that. I don't think your salvation is really real because sins like that, well, that's, that's not what saved people do. So clearly you must not be saved. And he's going to throw things at you. And if you're not equipped with the depth of the gospel, you might believe Satan when he lies to you. And when we believe Satan... And we accept the lie, we find ourselves spiraling away from the Spirit of God and what He wants to do in our lives to redeem and refresh and build up and minister and bring glory and honor into our lives. So you knowing the depths of your salvation gives you the ability to speak to the enemy when he lies to you and say, well, actually, that's not true. (laughs) What you're saying is wrong. Because God has spoken a different word over me than what you're saying right now. And I'm going to believe God's word and not yours. And God's word is that every sin that you have committed is dealt with by the finished work of Jesus. The law came to increase the trespass, verse 20, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. There's, you, can't, you can't find the end of God's grace. Whatever the amount of sin is in the world, God's grace, it didn't just like, you know, cover it. It abounded all the more. It is so capable of handling the sin of this world that we haven't found the ends of God's grace yet. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So there is a new kingdom, a new reign that is available, and that's even for the people that have not yet found faith in Jesus. This is why John will write, I think it's uh, 1 John 2.2. Sorry, I didn't give Rick this passage, but 1 John 2.2, 
Uh, for Jesus, is, it's the propitiation not only for our sins, John says, but for the sins of the whole world. What does that say? He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. John's just like, look, this thing isn't just this big. It's endless. The grace of God can legitimately handle every sin that this world has to throw at it. This is not a universalism teaching that all sins are covered by the cross. There's still an access point of faith. That's what Paul's been talking about, justification by faith. But it has the capacity to extend and extend and extend. So if you are convinced that your sins are not covered under the grace of God, you're wrong. And you're disbelieving the scriptures. The grace is bigger than your sin. All right, so I said I'd come back to verse 17. So let's take some time. We're going to camp in verse 17 for just a little bit. And this is, I'll tell you a little bit of my thought process. I was looking at Romans 5, and I was like, golly, this is a lot of the curse, the sin, the transgression. And we've been in that a lot in chapters 1 and 2 and 3. And I was like, Lord, can we talk about something else? I asked him that. (laughs) And he said, yes. Let's go to verse 17. See, verse 17 is is talking about, this is that great exchange that Martin Luther talks about. Okay, so Martin Luther, uh, you know, 1500s, theologian, Wittenberg door, Reformation, all that stuff. Uh, Martin Luther talks about the great exchange as uh, Jesus' righteousness was placed on us and our sin was placed on him. It's not just one. It's not just our sin was placed on him. But we don't have this righteousness that he's given us. We still have to earn that. And it's not just that his righteousness was placed on us, but we're still responsible for our sin. We're better people, but still sinful to the core. It's actually this great exchange of our sin placed on him, his righteousness placed on us, and we are not only righteous, but we are saved. And we're not only saved, but we are righteous. And Paul expands on this a little bit in verse 17. He says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. So that's, I want you to understand, death reigning. Death reigning. This is the state of the curse. This is where the world is today, is death reigns. Paul will talk about this in Colossians 1.17, another verse I didn't give to react, uh, that he talks about us being transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. So the, the state that you were in prior to getting saved is the domain of darkness. Death reigning. That is the state currently of everybody who is not a follower of Jesus, is they are under slavery to sin, the reign of death, the domain of darkness. Those are some brutal terms to describe the world that does not know Jesus. Now, Paul had an opportunity here to write some things that he chose not to write. He could have said that death reigned in Adam, but life reigns in Jesus. And I want to share with you a a quote from a theologian named John Stott. He's not alive anymore, but he wrote a phenomenal commentary on Romans. And he writes this. He says, Even so, we are not prepared for what follows, namely that the recipients of God's abundant grace will themselves reign in life. Formerly, death was our king. And we were slaves under its totalitarian tyranny. What Christ has done for us is not just to exchange death's kingdom 
for the much more gentle kingdom of life while leaving us in the position of subjects. Instead, he delivers us from the rule of death so radically as to enable us to change places with it and rule over it or reign in life. We become kings, sharing the kingship of Christ with even death under our feet now and one day to be destroyed. The the change that's happened, it's not just that you went from being captive to death and sin, and now you're still in this role of being a subject, and now you're, you're just captive to something different. You're captive to life, which would be beautiful. I would rather be captive to life than death. But Paul's working this out, and he's like, look, this salvation is different than that. You're not just moved from the, the status of death to the status of life. It's actually about more than that. We're called heirs of God and co-heirs with Jesus Christ in Romans chapter 8. I think it's verse 17. We're given this authority as a part of the kingdom of God to be co-rulers with Jesus in the world that we're in. And, and, and maybe you're thinking, okay, this, this language is getting a little strange. I want to talk about this because Paul says that we Reign in life through Jesus Christ. And part of what I want to do today is actually, I want to shift your posture a little bit. I want to move you from being a subject of sin and its rule over your life to having this mentality now of somebody who has authority to reign in life. I want to read another quote. This is from... Uh, a friend of ours named Alan Scott. He leads a church down in Anaheim. He says this, Rejoicing in the authority given to mankind, the psalmist exclaims, You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All things? Every environment? Really? It's astonishing authority. It's especially risky. It all sounds like too much, too far, more than mankind can handle. And again, the divine dream declares, lead the earth into life. Your destiny is to release the design of others. Your assignment to bring life. God allows humanity the opportunity to thrive in a place of honor and glory, furnishing humanity with the responsibility to bring life to every environment. And here's what I want to speak into you today before I let you go. You are not just saved from your sins. In your salvation, you are brought into a life of responsibility and leadership and authority. You are called to bring life to a dead world. It is your job. It's why you're still here. We've talked about this. If the end game is eternal life, then why, when you say yes to Jesus, aren't you instantly snapped up into paradise? It's called paradise. 
Eternity, life with God, all the good and true things of eternal life. Why is it not instant? Somebody shares faith with you. I don't know who would be there because everybody's in heaven, but somebody shares faith with you. You say yes, and wham, eternal life is yours. It would be the greatest evangelistic tool if everybody that says yes to Jesus is gone. And then you're like, well, I guess that's the true thing. Yes to Jesus, gone. And we're just leaving the earth at a rapid rate. It's a different story than that. God invites us to experience salvation. And then for many of us, we're saved, but we're still just slogging through a hard life. Man, these bodies break down. Friends betray you. Relationships fall apart. Money's hard. Family's hard. California's hard. Politics are hard. Schools are hard. Homelessness is hard. Alcoholism is hard. This world just feels heavy and laden with death. Why am I still here? It's because you have life. You have life. And more, you are being asked to reign Rule with the life of God. Bringing faith and joy and hope and goodness and peace and mercy into every environment that you are in. It's why you're still here to walk into every room that you walk into. And to bring the life of God into that room. And to speak differently. To think differently. To Posture yourself differently. It's why you're still here. Your purpose, your reason for being here is to be an ambassador for the life of God so that when you're on the soccer field and you're training up these young men and teaching them how to kick a ball into the net, you're actually bringing life into those young men and showing them that there is more to this world than kicking a ball around Westlake High School. When you're out there in Simi Valley working on the police force, you're not just a cop enforcing the laws. You're bringing, you're bringing life, and not just to the streets, but to the police station, and not just to the police station, but to the streets. You are this ambassador for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who put life in you. He's not just saying, okay, I've got this life. I want you to deliver it. He actually said, it's yours. It's in you, Mike. I want you to take this, and I want you to spread it into everybody that you come into contact with. You are my presence on earth, and I want you to carry it into a hurting world. Or breathe with your family. These three beautiful kids that you have that have come through you, they've been entrusted to you, and your job's not just to get them to survive until they're adults and to, to keep them as orderly and growing, hopefully mature and decent human beings. But you've been given life so that they can have life. So that they can experience it. And so that Abby knows that, that she can taste and see that the Lord is good. 
that he's so good for her and that there's an abundance of life for her to walk in. And God says, I have you here for that purpose. And so we do this life differently. This is not just theology. This is your life. And you have authority. And my challenge to you today is to walk with confidence in the authority that you've been given in Christ that you have life to give. When you're in a conversation, you're in that conversation with life to give. When you're at work, you are at work with life to give. And when you're at home, you are at home with life to give. It is the ministry that we've been given. Part of being saved is saying, yes, Lord, I'm in. Use me. Fill me. Flow through me and bless, bless, and bless with life. (laughs) It's always the moms. I got to be careful with these. Somebody snapped a picture of me one time, dabbing my eyes, and it uh, freeze-framed and became a meme among the staff. (laughs) Guys, there is so much more than salvation. I mean, we're going to feel salvation when we get there. It's going to be so good. But Jesus didn't just save you for eternity. He saved you for today. And there's life to bring to a dead world. And you're it. It's nobody else's job. You are it. You're it for your family. You're it for your neighbors. You're it for your job. You're it for the soccer field. You're it for the baseball field. You're it. So bring life. Lord, thank you. I just, I'm so, I'm so honored to be given this life. I'm so honored to be with these people who have this life. And I just ask, Lord, that as we walk in our story with you, just the, the breathing in the spirit of God to walk out into this world and to give what you have given us so freely. Lord, would you just... Uh, speak to us today. Remind us of who you've made us to be. God, you are so good. And we have you. So we have all the goodness of God to give to a world that needs to know the goodness of God. Lord, I just I pray that you would explode out of this community, that Anthem Church would just be a beacon of light and hope and life. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.